0: So Anushka told me in the sitting before uh, the last sitting that she used the analogy of getting on the ship before it departs. So luckily you're all here but I kind of feel like my colleagues have abandoned me a little. Hopefully this is not the sinking ship and they're over there with the life jackets or something. Hopefully not. And uh you have this Uh, these chant sheets that were handed out it's always the, the trouble with putting a piece of paper out is everyone voraciously reads it especially in a in a retreat like this where we're we don't have much to read you don't need to read it please just put it down it's uh we'll be doing some chanting later this evening but I may refer to the chants in the in the talk this evening so it's why I wanted them out now but you can just put them down so I don't know if you realize this, but you've actually done the hardest part of this retreat. You got here. Um, so now you can just relax, right? Just all of the intention, all the work that it took for you to get here. And I know what it's like to organize yourself to come on a retreat. All the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle that had to come into place. All the people that were supporting you to do this. Now you're here. Really just allow the process to unfold in this natural kind of easeful way because all of the necessary supports are here for you to do this practice. You don't need anything more. You don't need to be any different. You have a mind and a body and the intention to practice metta. It's all you need. And just being here in this environment, everything else will flow out of that. You know, we're lucky there are some extra supports. Teachers are here to give instructions. The whole sangha, the community is here. So there's a sense of sharing this practice with people. The staff takes such good care of us. And we get this great food. You know, so there's actually extra supports here. But the basic ones are just mind, body, intention. And that's what we're uh, going to be reminding you about over and over again of just trusting trusting this unfolding to happen in a, a very natural way. So the intention and in wanting to be here, wanting to do this practice is central and almost the most important thing. So you came here because you wanted to be here. Hopefully you still do. I don't know how today was. Sometimes the first day of retreat can be a little challenging, just kind of orienting to the schedule and another sitting. I just did a sitting and they want me to do another one. And I already walked up and down. How much walking up and down can one do in a day? Um, get used to it. This is what we do over and over again. We're just basically putting the mind and body in places of, of um, preparation, development for this practice of, mind, of metta. Um, and it's actually going against the stream of our culture, our society to do this, to take this time out of your busy lives, and most people have really full lives, to come and do a practice like this. I don't know, you know, about your friends, if they're not used to it, and you told them you were going to come to a nine-day silent retreat where you repeated phrases over and over again, they probably looked at you like you were a little loony, you know, it's, it's not common. Um, so it's really unusual to have this many people wanting to do this kind of practice. I think it's wonderful. But it's unusual. Uh, I don't know if you saw this recently. Last week or so, there was—you know—there are all these studies that are happening now, and the newspapers pick them up. And this study, uh, the, the, the few versions that I saw written up, were titled something like, "People Prefer Electric Shocks to Time Alone with Their Thoughts." <laughs> Did you see that one? And this is what the the, uh, journalist said. In the rush of everyday life, many people say they crave a moment of solitude, but a startling new study finds that most people don't really enjoy even spending 10 minutes alone with their thoughts. In fact, we find our own musings so unsatisfying that in research done recently, many people chose to administer painful electric shocks to themselves rather than sit in quiet contemplation, research has found. I was surprised that people found found themselves such bad company, the researcher said. It seems strange. It seems that the average person doesn't seem to be capable of generating a sufficiently interesting train of thought to prevent themselves from being miserable with themselves. So it's really rather gloomy that this is the state that many of us find ourselves in. And, you know, it, it, it's supported by other research that we often refer to here where the, it's, they found that the field where, where the, if the wandering mind is an unhappy mind, we kind of think, oh, if we get to daydream and just sort of muddle around in our thoughts, it's, that's kind of a happy thing or a satisfying thing to be doing. And research says it's actually oh, uh, not that way. 11 separate experiments shown, showed that we find our own thoughts painfully dull And then the researchers first tried giving the people anywhere from 6 to 15 minutes alone to think they weren't allowed to fall asleep They weren't allowed to check their phones Overall people rated this time, idle time not very enjoyable and they did it in their homes that also didn't work and so they started wondering, well, if it's so unpleasant just to be alone with your thoughts, what would people do not to be alone with their thoughts? And they discussed it. Uh, this researcher discussed this with Daniel Gilbert, who's a famous um, happiness researcher. And they began brainstorming. To answer this question, they started by exposing volunteers to positive and negative stimuli, including beautiful photographs and mildly painful electric shocks. They asked the people how much they would pay to avoid the shock experience if they had $5 to spend. Then the researchers told the 55 participants to sit in a room and think for 15 minutes. If they wanted, they also had the option to shock themselves by pressing a button, feeling a jolt resembling a severe static shock on their ankle. I have to... I have to tell you, with my other co-authors, there was a lot of debate. Why are we we doing this? No one is going to shock themselves. To their surprise, of the 42 people who said they would pay to avoid the shock, two-thirds of the men chose to shock themselves, and a quarter of the women did. One person pressed the button 190 times. This is in 15 minutes. Researchers were stunned. People were choosing an unpleasant sensation instead of freely cogitating on whatever they wanted. So it goes on to, to to talk about, you know, that we think that, you know, just to be idle and actually let the mind wander is a pleasant thing, and most people find it actually unpleasant. I don't know how it was for you today. I didn't see anyone kind of <laughs> shocking themselves or whatever. But to really realize that what we're doing is quite unusual compared to how most people choose to spend their time. And to actually want to come and engage in in this kind of practice, to deepen this intention, just to be with yourselves. To be with yourselves in this this silence, in this solitude, for this many days, really quite unusual. And so we have to keep reminding ourselves of our intention here. If it was ever painfully dull today, if you felt like a mild shock would have been a welcome relief, come back to your intention of why you want to do this practice. Because that's what we're doing again and again and again. Remembering the intention, the intention that got you here on the retreat, and this intention towards kindness. Because we can't manufacture metta. We can't. All we can do is create the conditions for this natural uh, flowering of the heart to arise, and then it happens. But we can keep creating the intention so that's what we do again and again and again. We keep connecting with that intention, refreshing the intention, opening to it, and getting familiar with this f- space or field of metta. We get familiar with how to access it, all the different ways, the different tools and techniques and tips that we'll be sharing with you over these days, how to access it, how to cultivate it, how to deepen it, and how to maintain it. This is what we'll be talking about over these days. Here are some words on on kindness from someone. Kindness covers all my political beliefs. No need to spell them out. I believe that if at the end, according to our abilities, we have done something to make others a little happier and something to make ourselves a little happier, that is about the best we can do. To make others less happy is a crime, To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute joy to the world. That is true no matter what our problems, our health, our circumstances, we must try. I didn't always know this and am happy I lived long enough to find it out. It almost sounds like the Dalai Lama, doesn't it? It's Roger Ebert, the film critic. Um, And there's a movie out recently, I haven't seen it yet, but I think people valued him and his wisdom so much there's a whole documentary about his life and I think he was a genuinely kind and thoughtful man. And you're here because you've lived long enough to find out how important kindness is and that you want to develop the capacity to express it in your lives, to express it towards yourself, and to be able to express it for others, towards others. So this practice of metta, we usually translate it as loving kindness. I actually quite like that translation, but even that can sometimes trip us up a little. As soon as we put the word love in there, we start to evaluate. You know, am I lovable? Can I love? Do I have enough love? Is this the right kind of love? Is this metta? Am I feeling the right thing? You know, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it uh, expressing enough? Is it big enough? Is it, is it warm enough? All of these kind of judgments. Um, I think it's really important to keep it really simple and actually have a very low bar for what we're cultivating here. It is this basic kindness that, that Roger Ebert was talking about. And you could even keep it simpler than that. Friendliness. Friendliness. Some other words that people translate uh, metta as a benevolence or goodwill or friendship. This is the kind of attitude that we're cultivating. Really, actually quite simple. It's a basic okayness. A basic okayness with ourselves and with life. With you, with me, with things as they are, with experience. So the heart of metta is actually acceptance. Acceptance, kindness friendliness, all of these different ways of being with experience. That's what we're actually cultivating. Because there's not always love. It's certainly not always blissful. Actually, perhaps only in short moments may have a, an experience of some kind of bliss. Sometimes it's not even very kind. And you've probably had times today of the mind being judgmental or critical or hard. This practice has its challenges. If you're new to the practice, you'll start to experience that. We call it a purification practice for a reason. The difficulties that we come up against in the practice and how we deal with them are really an important part of the practice. Shah will be talking about that tomorrow night. So really to have a very simple idea of what it is that we're cultivating so that we don't beat ourselves up for not having some ideal, idealized view or experience of metta. Here are some words from Ajahn Sumedho. James mentioned Ajahn Sumedho earlier um, as someone who said something that was really helpful for him about metta. I've also appreciated his teachings. He's a, a very wise American man who was ordained in the Thai forest tradition and, and taught and was the abbot of Amaravati Monastery. He's kind of gone uh, stepped away from his administrative duties now and is uh, living more of a practice life and is very happy, I believe. He's actually in California at the moment. But this is at a retreat. Actually, he taught here that I sat with him. He said, metta is often translated as love. This word has many meanings for us. We usually connect it with liking, as in I love pizza means I like to eat it, not I have metta for it. With metta, you can love, but you don't have to like. Metta includes the opposite of liking. It includes not liking. Liking depends on circumstances or mood. Metta doesn't. When metta is idealistic, it doesn't work. If you feel, I should love my mother or whatever. Or we can send metta to all beings, but can't feel for the people we know because we feel we always have to like them and sometimes we don't. This kind of metta can't include difficulties. When a child is misbehaving, the conditions for liking aren't there, but if unconditional love can still be. Liking requires certain conditions. Metta doesn't. We should use ideals like guiding stars to be able to acknowledge that the current realities may not be ideal, but metta can still be exist there. And I love that because he's always saying we don't want to beat ourselves up with these ideals, these elevated, this elevated sense of how we should be or who we should be, actually in the reality of how things are. And sometimes that's not ideal or it's difficult. And it can be easy to be overwhelmed by the difficulties of the world, all of the negativities, the hatred, the prejudice, the intolerance, the injustice, the cruelty really can be overwhelming for us and it's, it's hard to understand ha- hard to um, stay with that, to stay open to that. For me, one of the helpful things when you know I'm reading something that's really difficult is if I can just step back for a little and recognize that virtually all unskillful actions, all of those negative kind of activities have at their core fear and out of that a self-centeredness, a protectiveness that leads to that kind of action. That fear is the base of so much um, unskillful human emotion and activity. And if I can get in touch with that, I can stay open a little bit more and not separate, start pointing the finger at others and what they're doing, because I, I can't really understand fully their situation. A little while ago, I read an article in a Parade magazine on Angelina Jolie. It's my one of my uh, references for celebrity news. I don't read much celebrity news. Parade comes with the Sunday paper, so that's what I get, a lot of news about celebrities, if I, if I read it at all. And uh It's often got some nice uplifting kind of things in it too, so I often find good stories in there. And so it had this whole article about Angelina Jolie, and I don't know how she is as a person, obviously, don't know her at all, but I could really see, and from other news I've read too, that she's really decided, is committed to doing something good and wholesome with her fame and her wealth. And she talked about a time when she was filming in Cambodia, she said, one of the first refugee camps I went to had 400,000 people. It was a sea of human misery. In Sierra Leone, I saw tens of thousands of people with their arms and legs cut off by rebels, Orphan children. I felt completely overwhelmed. I cried constantly. I felt guilty for everything that I had. Then I realized I wasn't doing these people any good any favors by crying. I wasn't doing these people any favors by crying. I kept getting angry at the injustices until I couldn't think straight. And I took a deep breath and focused on how I could help. I discovered that I was useful as a person. When I met suffering people, it put my life in perspective. It slammed me into a bigger picture of the world. And she's really gone, into, gone on to do some quite amazing things to help relieve suffering in the world. And we're faced every day to that kind of thing, to some degree, perhaps not as directly as she was, but you just have to read a newspaper, watch the news, get online, and there's untold miseries out there in the world. There's the stories from our own life, our friends and our loved ones who suffer and have difficulties, challenges in their lives, our own challenges. How do we stay open? How do we stay present for that? But what's also true is there are countless acts of kindness that don't get reported because they're not big news. Um, They don't get, uh, they're not newsworthy in the way the atrocities are. Yet, as I said earlier, all of the acts of kindness that helped you to be here, the person that encouraged you to come on retreat, the people that are house-sitting for you, taking care of your pets, doing uh, some of your job at work, family that are taking care of things while you're away, friends that are supporting you, just going to the doctors and having someone really be kind as they take your blood pressure or give you an injection or give you some test results. The staff here at Spirit Rock are so kind and caring. I mean, they really want to take care of us in all the ways that they do. And as well as the internet being full of all this bad news, there's also whole sites that are devoted to good news and uplifting stories and compassion and, and, uh, you know, humor and cuteness. And there's a whole, I think there's now a whole livelihood of people who's job it is to write intriguing you know headlines for stories oh you must read this it made me cry or this is the cutest thing you've ever seen all this hyperbole about stories to get us to click on them I think it's a whole job that people have but we need something like that to kind of balance the negative that we're so often uh, in contact with just something that keeps our heart open the goodness that is out there in the world the kindness the caring the softness the other night I, I watched a movie that's been out for a while on Nelson Mandela's life, Long Walk to Freedom. And it was quite it was very moving, of course, to to get a sense of him. I, I know the, the basic details of his life, but they really didn't try to picture him as a perfect person. And it was interesting to see him in his imperfection, but kind of getting purified, you could say, as his life went on, especially through his time in prison. I mean, 25 years in really, really difficult conditions. I mean, they really tried to make his life difficult. And then gradually after these 25 years, the people in power, the white people in power started to realize they needed to make some changes, that it wasn't sustainable, the system they had. So they gradually were bringing Nelson out and into dialogue with them. And in one of the scenes, he's sitting in a room with this bunch of white men who are in power in the political party of the time. And they're trying to negotiate some kind of power sharing. But the, the guys, these guys are saying, you know, are they, you can see how frightened they are. They know they need to do it. But they say, if we give you any power, people are just going to want revenge. It's going to be mayhem. And Nelson just sort of shakes his head and he says, we don't want revenge. We've seen what living in fear has done to you the way you act, the way you live. And we don't want that for ourselves. We don't want that for our children. So we don't want revenge. And it was such a powerful scene to see that commitment after all he'd been through and all he knew that was going on, you know, all the time he was in prison. We don't want that for ourselves. And so he really did make that commitment towards forgiveness. And so we all have to make that commitment again and again and again to kindness, to forgiveness. We don't just make it once and we're done. There's innumerable times in in any one day that we have to keep coming back to kindness. I mean, even the little things that irritate you on retreat, and it'll happen You know, someone who doesn't seem to be as mindful as you think they should be or who's breathing too loudly or taking up too much space or is in your walking path that you've carefully cultivated. All of the things that happen on retreat. We have endless opportunities to keep coming back, to keep committing to kindness. So you'll have plenty of opportunities. And as we do that over and over again, we get more and more of a sense of this feeling of metta being a natural state of the heart, not something we have to kind of artificially contrive, but just allow it to manifest, allow it to to cultivate. We can strengthen it, but it is there naturally when we're not so much in the way, when we're actually more undefended, when we start to feel a little safe, a little vulnerable even. Shada spoke, the other night, uh, last night it was, seems a long time ago already, about the refuges, uh, the traditional ones, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. But all of us need to find what are our refuges here, whether it's the traditional ones, but just being on retreat is a refuge. Your room is a refuge. Being out in nature is a refuge. Forgiveness can be a refuge. Letting go can be a refuge. So whether they're internal or external, all of us. Need to kind of cultivate uh, these refuges that allow us to let the barriers down a little. Part of retreat is is this undefendedness, sort of softening. It'll happen naturally. You don't have to try to do this, but just if you notice it happening, it's okay. We start to be more willing to feel. We get more sensitive. This is what happens on retreat. Because the proximate cause for for metta is actually feeling the good in ourselves and others. So we have to feel into, feel into ourselves, feel into others and feel that basic goodness. It comes from empathy, from recognizing that all beings just like us want to be happy. We all want to be happy. Everyone here in the room, all of the human beings, all of the non-human beings. Their life is precious, our lives are precious, and we want to be happy. And metta tunes into that, keeps tuning, tuning into that. We, 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 when we uh, talk about compassion, which we will on this retreat, it, the literal meaning of compassion is compassion, to feel with. And it's usually around suffering, feeling people suffering. But metta also feels with metta comes out of this sense of empathy, this sense of interconnectedness, this sense of sharing these human values and knowing that uh, the uh, other beings want to be happy just like us. So it's this natural response of connectedness. And it can start to be, and maybe it is for you already, more of a foundational response. It's accessible even when the conditions aren't ideal, even when Things aren't going our way. So we start by creating a fertile field so that the meta has a place to grow, has a place to flourish, where we feel safe and protected. But as it gets more stable, more, more accessible, it's actually a, a, a more of a fundamental response even when things are difficult. This is from Martin Luther King. We must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. Forgiveness is not an occasional act, it is a permanent attitude. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. The Buddha actually said something almost identical. I don't know if Martin Luther King got it from the Buddha, but uh, anger is never uh, conquered by anger. Love alone can conquer anger, was the words of the Buddha. So we use all of these tools and techniques at our disposal. Whatever works, we'll keep saying that. Whatever works, it's a great experiment. It's very, um, what's the word James used, customizable for each of us. We'll have a slightly different way that we do metta. I love that James this morning had us put our hands on our heart. I call that a metta mudra. Um, And it's amazing. As he said, it has a physiological response as we touch ourselves in that way. Any way we touch ourselves, we respond to the touch. And metta is actually a very physical practice. Even though it seems kind of mental, where using the words or the phrases or imagining beings and radiating the metta we feel it very physically. So we're going to be encouraging you, just like we did today, to keep landing in the body, feeling it in the body. And so these mudras, whatever they might be for you, are really helpful. And mudras have power. Mudras are gestures of the hand. So this uh, gesture of the Buddha is called the earth-touching mudra. And I often talk about that with students. It was on the night of his enlightenment as he was almost pushed off his seat. He'd said, I'm going to sit here until I awaken. And all these forces assailed him. And he said, no, I have a right to sit here. And this gesture of confidence and faith and trust, a really beautiful gesture. Maybe you'll need that one of these days of just, I can face this. I can be with this. I can open to this, this earth-touching mudra. I recently sat a retreat with Ajahn Suchito, um, another monk in the um, Thai Forest tradition. He's English, has a monastery in England, really wonderful teacher, and he talked about the potency of these gestures. Um, and he said, often with our hands, you know, we're pointing and grabbing and poking and tapping, and it's these kind of very um, aggressive, almost, movements with the hand, and you can feel the energy in that. And then he contrasted it with the kind of softness of the receptive open palm, and it was just a beautiful sort of contrast between you know how often you know not good not right like this don't like this this kind of uh, st- agitation through through just the hand and then this softness. So even as your hands are in your lap, or perhaps your metta mudra is holding yourself holding hands with yourself, resting your hands one in the other. James often does this too, resting your hand on your cheek. It's amazing how tender that feels. And you you know it's you doing it, (laughs) but there's something kind of grandmotherly about just that touch. So we give you permission and please. People love it, you know, just to see people sitting there with their hands on their heart, or holding themselves, or whatever gesture, your metta mudra, it has a power. These mudras, uh, mudra of the prajnaparamita, or the mudra of abhaya, fearlessness, all of these have power. I uh, actually... A, number of, a few years ago, I went a couple of times to India to go on pilgrimage to the holy sites of India, um, Buddhist holy sites. So it's the sites associated with the life and the death, the teachings of the Buddha. And one of my favorite sites was Sarnath, which is where the Buddha gave his first discourse. It's a little outside Varanasi, and most of Sarnath is in ruins. It's a beautiful park, so it's very peaceful, but you know a lot of ruins. But they took some of the things they found into a, a museum in Sarnath. and in that museum there is what I think is the most beautiful Buddha statue in the world. I'll just say that categorically, that's what I think. It's It's exquisite, it's made, it's, it's larger than life size, it's got uh, some detail around it, you know, they have st- whole stories, but it's made of some kind of sandstone, it's kind of golden, it just glows, and the face, which is always the most important part, somehow radiates this softness and this kindness at, at the same time as it radiates depth and wisdom. So you could say this kind of union of wisdom and compassion, kindness and wisdom. It's, it's really very special. And it's also got this really unusual mudra. And I was so curious about it. Luckily, there was someone there who could explain it a little. It, it, um, two of the fingers in the thumb point to the heart, so inward. And then these other two fingers rest on the palm of this hand, which is in a circle facing out. And what it's referring to is inward cultivation, outward expression. And I love that, it's wisdom and compassion. Or the other way, as I reflected on it, it was like the first two path factors. Again, I won't go into this Four Noble Truths, the Fourth Noble Truth, Eightfold Path. The first two path factors are right view and right intention. Right view just means understanding the Dhamma, understanding the way things are. And out of that is the expression, wise or right intention, how we act in the world. And the simple expression of wise intention is letting go and kindness. And so I really see this mudra as that expression of our practice. We, we cultivate this understanding of suffering, of the way things are, of our experience. And out of that understanding, we express this kindness and this willingness to let go, to not hold on, to be tight. And so there's this natural natural evolution that happens as we sit with ourselves, as the clarity starts to come. We we feel the suffering. I mean, some of it is just the suffering of being on retreat. Our knees are aching, our back is aching, you know, we may be a little lonely or whatever, but of course suffering in the bigger picture. And it tenderizes us. And because we know this suffering is shared, we want to meet that with kindness, meet it for ourselves and certainly meet it for others. And so we are more in alignment with our values, with this, with this um, understanding. Ajahn Chah, who was the teacher of Ajahn Semedo, so in the, a Thai forest monk, had this to say, outside of the Dhamma, and that word just means the truth or the teachings or the practice, outside of the Dhamma there isn't anything that will bring peace and happiness to this world. Outside of Dhamma, there is only the struggle of winning and losing, envy and ill will. One who enters the Dhamma lets go of, thing, of these things and spreads loving kindness and compassion instead. Even a little bit of such Dhamma is of great benefit. Whenever an individual has such qualities in the heart, the Buddha's way is flourishing." So I really see that as what we're doing here. We're really aligning ourselves with the Dhamma. And out of that, just the natural response is spreading love, loving kindness and compassion. And so we can see that the Buddha's way is flourishing when we do this practice. So tomorrow, we'll start the more traditional or formal practice of metta. And I love the question this morning of why do we do it this way? Why do we repeat the phrases? It's a a good question. And I love James's answer. We do it because it works. And all of us are here as teachers. And many of you who've done this practice before are here because you know it works. That we do this practice of repeating these phrases over and over again and inclining the mind and heart towards kindness and something happens. Something gets revealed, something gets opened, something gets, gets uh, strengthened in us. We don't put this in the write-ups. Um, I'm a little hesitant to even say it, but basically we're brainwashing you. It's a good kind of brainwashing, but that's what it is. We're washing out all the negativity, the places of limitation, and replacing it with this inclination towards kindness, Um, and we'll start using these phrases tomorrow. We'll be talking more about them, how to use them, and basically what we're doing is replacing the usual uh, obsessions of the mind, you'd even say drivel of the mind, the usual stuff, you know, the worries, and the lists, and the planning, and the remembering, and the, the rehearsing, and we keep saying, no, not that, this, no, not that, this. And so we use the phrases to kind of take up the thinking energy of the mind and direct it towards metta. And sometimes it'll feel artificial. You just be repeating these phrases over and over again. Why, my God, did I think this was a good idea? You know, that you'll all have that thought sooner or later. But as my good friend Carol Wilson says fake metta is better than real aversion any time. So, you know, and it really is, you fake it until you make it, you know. It, it will feel kind of forced or artificial. After a while, it'll get, gain its momentum. The metta energy starts to build, we get more comfortable with it, and it does actually um, develop out of that. And so I wanted to talk a little about why we do it that way. So this practice basically was um, developed from the words of the Buddha. And the sheet that was handed out um, has on one side the Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is the sutta that's in the text that, as far as, far as we know, as, as well as we can know, are the original teachings of the Buddha. And he talks about developing loving kindness, and we'll be chanting this in the evenings. And it says, you know, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of path of peace, He's talking to us, saying, practice in this way. And the, the section that kind of is about a formal practice is wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. This is the kind of um, sense of uh, expansive metta to all kinds of beings that's the the genesis of of this practice and doing it in a formal way. And then over the years, the hundreds and then thousands of years after the Buddha, the practice got more and more refined, more techniques um, developed until in the v- Vasudhimaga, this, this great compendium, this text that was written in about the 5th century uh, B.C. by Buddhaghosa, where he it's a lot about concentration practices, metta practice, um, and he, he really sort of brought together all of the understanding about it. And, and there they started to talk more clearly about using phrases. And so will you f- use phrases that for us... Uh, connote a general sense of well wishing a sort of universal well wishing, so addressing these areas of safety of happiness of health of well-being. And well being and we 'll talk more about that tomorrow. so we develop these phrases there are traditional phrases that we 'll refer to many of you develop your own phrases um, that that really speak to this sense of well wishing, and then these categories of beings, kind of an extension of the the whatever living beings there may be, weak or strong, we start with ourselves. It's really considered um, important that we begin this metta practice with metta for ourselves. And then we go to where it's easy. And this can often be counterintuitive. We think, well, I feel metta for where, where it's easy for my loved ones. I want to go to where it's difficult. You know, that's where I need metta, when I'm angry or frustrated or with my difficult people. There's a real wisdom in taking it slowly and actually developing it with the people that it's easy. Because even with the people that it's easy, it'll get difficult. If you keep doing it enough over and over again, it's like, enough already with my benefactor. I, you know, said matter enough. So it's part of the training to use the phrases and uh, to go through these different categories. But there's also the practice that we did today, which is more of an open, suffusing kind of practice, and that's taken from the chant that's on the other side, uh, the four boundless qualities, and we'll chant that in the evenings as well. I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving-kindness, Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, above and below, around and everywhere, to all as to myself, I will abide, pervading all the all encompassing world with a heart imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That kind of just suffusing matter, whether you use phrases or not, so We're going to be encouraging you to try these different practices. And at different times, one or the other may work better for you. Um, Encourage you to try both. Certainly encourage you to try the phrases that we'll be introducing tomorrow because there's a real um, steadiness that comes with that. There's a training that comes with that that's really very helpful. But there's different ways of even working with that, finding the phrases that work for you, finding the speed that works for you, highlighting the word, the key word in each phrase, and letting that resonate. No need to rush through the phrases. So all of this will be developing. And then, of course, working with the image, the image of the person that you're sending metta to, the feeling, feeling it as a felt sense in the body, All of these are important aspects, and at different times for each of us, one or the other of these will perhaps be stronger. And at times they'll all come together in this uh, beautiful synthesis. And that's when the practice can have another effect, which is concentrating the mind. Metta is actually a powerful concentration practice through the steadiness of the phrases, the steadiness of the feeling, or the steadiness of the image, the mind can actually become quite absorbed. And I love that this practice offers this, as well as the opening of the heart and this intending and towards kindness. It can also bring the powerful benefits of concentration, where the mind gets more stable and more steady, um, not distracted or unified. And this kind of concentration isn't a narrow or a stiff focus. It really is a landing. It's a, it's a steadying and a, and a unification of mind. And in this case, around the meta feeling. So the hindrances aren't so challenging for us. We're not restless or sleepy. We just get absorbed into the meta flavor. So it's a beautiful practice to be able to feel that happening as we deepen. And even though this retreat is a little longer than it has been, it's still short to develop or really deepen in concentration. But I'm sure all of you will get a taste of that, especially as the practice becomes more continuous. And as you do it in an easeful way, you can't force the concentration just as you can't force the metta feeling. It's just by inclining the mind and this intention of coming back again and again and again and what the concentration does is develop this these qualities of mind where the mind is steady and it's malleable and it's flexible it's almost it's like a trained mind the buddha said something like uh, nothing can harm you more than your untrained mind and nothing is a greater ally than your trained mind and this metta is training the mind inclining the mind towards kindness and actually giving it this kind of strength. There's a resilience that comes out of this practice. So the the the, the basis for that kind of steadiness is the phrases, is uh, steadying with the phrases, the repetition of the phrases, finding what works for you, doing it in an easeful way, as well as the feeling, as well as the visualization. So you'll all be kind of moving in and out of these aspects of the practice. Sometimes one will kind of drop and land for you and feel really right, other times and others. And then there are the times where they all kind of come together in an easeful way. This is the, the customizing of the practice or the, the fluidity with the practice. And it just gets more and more deep and powerful. We'll also be teaching the other Brahma-viharas. This is a a, 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 Brahma-vihara, two words that mean divine abidings or the best home or happy home. And if you haven't been to Spirit Rock, you'll know, or you have been to Spirit Rock, you know our buildings are named after these Brahma-viharas. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so we include these in this retreat, even though metta is the foundation practice. When metta, this feeling of kindness, turns to suffering or is open to suffering, it feels compassion, it becomes compassion. When it feels uh, happiness and joy in another, it becomes mudita, or joy. And it always needs upekka, this steadiness, this equanimity, um, to actually keep it grounded, keep it connected. So as the days go on, we'll, we'll teach you these practices as well. We'll teach forgiveness practice, because as we open the heart and, and get more sensitive, whatever is an obstacle to the metta, whatever wounds or hurts we have, they'll come up for us. And so learning how to open in a skillful way, in a wise way, in an appropriate way, is really helpful. So the practice of forgiveness, the gratitude practice, where we actually appreciate the blessings of our lives. All of these come together to support this field of metta that we're creating. And so it's a powerful practice It really will touch every part of you, mind, body, and heart. It's why I love this practice, why I keep coming back and teaching it, why I keep doing it for myself. As Maya Angelou says, a beautiful woman, fortunately now departed, she said, Love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, leaps fences, penetrates walls to arrive at its destination full of hope. This is our journey we set that intention. Love has no barriers, recognizes no barriers. It will find a way, as they say. At one meta retreat I taught a little while ago, at this, I got this great note from a yogi towards the end of the retreat. And it was just full of little kind of one-liners, her reflections on her practice. And she said, instead of applying for Medicare, we should all apply for Metta care. Mm-hmm. And she said, and it's especially appropriate now, practicing for universal coverage of loving kindness, (laughs) pervading all quarters without discrimination or conditions. And she said, metta is an optimistic practice. People can be happy. And I really think that's true. It's an optimistic practice. It's a joyful practice. We need to practice metta with metta. So if you find yourself getting tight or frustrated or judgmental, see if you can come back to your intention towards kindness. What brought you here? Look around. Find something that awakens that in you. And just begin again. Because this practice is about being happy. It's about being happy in yourselves. It's about wishing happiness to others. It's about finding joy and happiness in your life here on retreat and as you go about your days. So usually at the end of these uh, talks, we just take a few moments for the words to settle into silence before we go to the next phrase. You don't have to change your posture, but if you wish to get more comfortable, we just sit together in silence for a few moments, letting the words settle. If you wish to come back to the metta practice of just anything that I've said that's resonated with you, anything from today that's resonated, just opening to a sense of kindness towards yourself, radiating it out in a gentle way, just spending a few minutes just sitting in silence. Thank you for your kind attention. We have about 35 minutes for some walking practice. You can go outside and get some fresh air. Just kind of energize yourself a little, or you can get a cup of tea. At 9 o'clock, we have... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.